Polarization is tearing our world apart. Many of us feel isolated and unable to speak our minds even to our friends and family. This is Effective Conversations with Yale Feiner, where we explore opposing viewpoints on polarizing topics and learn to speak with courage and compassion. So, Ellie Feiner, is that your name? <laughs> How old are you? <laughs> what makes you a candidate for a podcast? What do you know, mister? Oh, oh I have... Uh... I have some channels to get onto this particular podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, you what, know what? what is your um, Ellie, yeah. Um, my specific credentials to talk about this is I wasn't born Ellie Finer. I was born Oleg Golovinsky. Um, my dad's from Ukraine. My mom is from St. Petersburg. I was born in Soviet Russia in 1980. I lived for 10 years under um, Soviet rule. Um, I thought of Lenin as Grandpa Lenin, and I have actual love for him. Um, and then I moved to Israel, which is kind of the West. And then later I moved to Canada with you, which is really? even even more to the West. Um, so I guess I have a perspective on, on, um, multiple sides of this issue. Yeah. Let's yeah. start with growing up in Russia. What is it like for people that really don't have no idea? What does it mean? This rules of the Soviet and what is censorship that we think that here is censorship and here there's no journalism of freedom of speech. <laughs> and you like to joke about that <laughs> explain us it's it's true so so here's an interesting thing asking a person who who um was growing up in the soviet union what censorship is like is like asking a fish what water is like it's not something you notice it's something you are in you've never experienced it being any other way uh and maybe you have an inkling of you know things you're not supposed to think or things you're not supposed to talk about it wasn't quite as bad as the as the 1984 book like there was no when i was growing up there was no um kind of thoughts you shouldn't have in your head it was not that bad but there were definitely there was definitely a clear line between discussions you can have in in the privacy of your own home usually after having a drink or two and the kind of discussions you can have with people you don't know and, and it that's worked. why because they might tell on yeah. you yeah oh yeah that's the reason <laughs> absolutely that's the reason yeah absolutely so so uh, you need a couple to protect of notes. yourself from people that you don't know because you don't know if they're working for the government something like that um, so it, my own fears or the fears in my own family were based on two things. One is the government, um, who might be, you know, listening, uh, and people who might report you to the government that was definitely present. The other is that because we were Jewish and Russia at that point was a very much an anti-Semitic country, um, that's kind of another source of fear. So, and there was an Russia, interesting. Anti-Semitic? Is, is there fighting Nazism? 
well, we'll talk about it later. <laughs> <laughs> what they're fighting and what they claim to be fighting. Uh, yeah, anti-Semitic. So Russia had a really interesting, um, uh, this is a bit of a tangent, but it has a really interesting relationship with its Jewish population. On the one hand, um, Jews were kind of at the lowest rung of whatever social order or racial um, order in Russia. On the other hand, uh, Jews occupied the most prestigious uh, positions in the academy, in um, in science, in math. Um, so there was this dual kind of standard. Um, a a Jewish last name would signify at the same time someone who is very smart, possibly accomplished, and very despised. That was kind of the uh, the complexity. Yeah. Anyway, um, I was 10 years old when I left the Soviet Union. So a lot of this is a combination of my own kind of intuitive sense of how things were and my later understanding of how they actually were. Um, I had a very strong perception of everyone else outside of our family circle being the enemy for both of these reasons, because of, uh, because of being Jewish and because of having some, um, counter government thoughts and discussions in our house. My parents were not really anti-communist or kind of radical thinking, um, but they liked Western music and they liked Western quote unquote forbidden literature, uh, which is almost all <laughs> Western literature and almost all Western music. Just to put like, <sighs> so this is a story I, I told you about this before. Um, I had, when I was six or seven years old, someone smuggled in um, a cassette tape of Leonard Cohen from Poland, which to us was the West, uh, into Russia. And that was the only Western music I've ever heard. And I heard that uh, cassette on repeat for two years, uh, probably daily, maybe multiple times a day. That's why I know all the words <laughs> to that. Um, and this was forbidden music. Right? It was not like you couldn't go and buy Western music or, or get it. That was like some kind of underground channels. What was the uh, fear from, of Russia? <sighs> what was forbidden? I'll, I'll answer that question in a second. I, I just want to give another example. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a famous programming book um, called K&R, which was like the first popular programming book in the West. That was forbidden as well. It was stolen into Russia, translated by some volunteers, printed in secret, and distributed through, the, through like a secret network of distributing forbidden books. This was a programming book, right? It's not. It didn't have anything about politics, but it was a Western thing that was not specifically approved, and therefore uh, it was forbidden. Uh, and what was your question? Because it sounded important. <laughs> <laughs> What, why Russia forbid that? So this is going to be a, an assumption, but 
I think what the leaders in Russia knew was that if the Russian people understood what they what they were being deprived of, they would rebel. Um, they will be uh, spoiled by the opportunities of the capitalist world, world uh, by you know the the fancy food, the fancy cars, the 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 fancy living, um, and you know what? It might even be a compassionate thing to prevent people. It's like when you go on Facebook and you see how rich people live, that makes you miserable. It makes sense um, for some compassionate government official um, to prevent you from doing that too much or maybe even at all so you don't feel miserable. So I'm kind of over pushing the compassionate angle here because it was disturbing. <laughs> but I'm just I'm just trying to see like there, there's a good reason to do that. But there's a line if... between yeah, but there's a line and it resonates with what in in our religious it's happening, right? That uh, women have to cover themselves and not be too pretty, so men wouldn't be so intimidated by that. So it's from one hand controlling people and from the other hand helping them to be more contained and maybe happy with what they have. So there is both exactly. sides to that. Yeah, exactly. So, so you start with Russia that limits what people can have and do and the kind of freedom they experience. And then you add a little bit of compassion to it so that they don't even see what they're missing. So they're not as miserable, but the actual true reason is that people would have revolted uh, if they saw it. And yeah. that is exactly what happened in the early nineties. Uh, uh, the first post-communism revolution, I think it was 91, where people did get exposed to what the West had to offer. And then they wanted that too, right? They wanted, um, they wanted when when uh, um, the first branch of McDonald's opened in, in Moscow, there was like a huge line. When when Metallica came to Moscow, Moscow in, I think it was maybe 89 or 88, a million people came to see that. It's a rock band, right? Like it's a really popular rock band. They're awesome. But a million people, that's a lot of people. I don't know if there was, I don't think Woodstock was as big. Like it's, it's ridiculous. The, the kind of the, the, the hunger uh, for that was, was really deep. Um, so what and, is allowed in Russia? What kind of channels and news and what is right okay? now? I, yeah, right I, now and maybe in the past too, like give us. So when I was growing up, um, technologically, we were like 30 or 40 years behind the West, uh, which means we didn't have um, remote controls for, for our TVs. And we had, I think, two or three channels um, that need, need, needed to switch manually. And very few people had color TVs. So it's like the 60s or the 70s uh, in the States. But no uh, TV for kids, I guess. Well, you know, at at a particular time at night, there would be a like um, there was a show called Spokojne Nochi Malushi, which means uh, "Good Night Kids," uh, which was like a, a just a bunch of um, nice cartoons, probably with some communist messaging in them, but I don't really remember that. Um, it wasn't like there were three state-owned and state-delivered channels on on TV. Um, one was from Moscow, the other was from St. Petersburg, uh, where I was, and maybe another one. Uh, there was maybe one or two radio stations. They were both state controlled. There was no 
free media in any sense of the word. And from what I've read online recently, uh, with the recent crackdown on everything that kind of opposed uh, the state, this is where it's coming down to right now in Russia too. So everything that any channel, any kind of news outlet that says anything remotely uh, critic of the government or even offering some other view of the world uh, is immediately shut down um, or threatened or in in some way, basically what they, they seem to be getting the news they should be reporting on. So they're not, as far as I can tell, they're not even allowed to call what's going on in Ukraine a war. Um, they're only allowed to call it an operation and so on and so forth. They, they can't even like choose the words they use. Uh, so, yeah, and... So it's it's gotten worse recently. Oh yeah, worse. no, it's it's gotten way worse within a week. Like I've within been tracking, yeah, I've been I was tracking what's going on in in on Twitter, and I'm kind of worried about both sides of this, about both what's happening in Ukraine and and what's happening in Russia. And there was just a at the same time as the, that the West was um, implementing uh, these these uh, bans on on Russian products and pulling companies out of there. Uh, Russia was shutting down news channels, um, banning Facebook, then Twitter. Um, um, one by one, they declared on various news outlets as being foreign agents. So it's not, it's this crazy thing they do there where they take a company that operates within Russia that has an alternative viewpoint and they declared as an agent of a foreign state, basically an enemy company, uh, which means they can now do whatever the hell they want with it. Um, what people in Russia, like if you imagine yourself as a Russian person, you're kind of an aware person, but like a regular person that had all the channels before and, had, and maybe had Twitter and Facebook and now it's gone, denied because of this and this reason. What, what do you understand? Or what do you think people understand from that? So I think there would be two um, kind of different responses to that. Um, and this is this is my kind of imagination based on my experience and, and what it feels like to be there. not it's not fact, but this is this is my perception. If you're younger, if you speak English, if you've been physically living in Russia, but kind of emotionally and mentally feeling yourself part of the West, um, usually of Europe more than of the United States, that's kind of more where Russian affinity goes to, then I think it's pretty likely you would blame the Russian regime for, for that and you would see things for what they are. Um, I don't, and now depending on, on, on how brave you are, that would translate into, okay, we need to do something uh, on one hand, or, oh my God, my life is over on the other hand, because now whatever freedom you thought you have, you don't have anymore. Or wait, wait a second, how do I get out of here? And how can I leave? And where are the plane tickets? And how can I get enough money to, to leave Russia? Uh, that's what I've been... Them, like in any country, say right. Russian that want to flee, come. Well, he, you see, no. <laughs> <laughs> Please come, but, our borders but this... are open for immigrants from Russia, yay. 
Probably not, but you know, it, so there's. It seems that there's an influx of Russians into places like um, uh, Georgia and Kazakhstan, and kind of lower uh, former uh, uh, Soviet Union republics. Um, the economy there is not great. Um, there are not necessarily um, great places to live, and Russia may invade them at one point or another too, as as it as it likes to do, um, but. Um, it's way freer than Russia right now. So I think right. it seems that a lot of people are fleeing to wherever they can across a Russian, the Russian border, uh, probably not towards the West. So there is movement because, of people out of Russia right now? Yeah, I don't know how, how, how significant it is, uh, but there's talk online about a brain drain, especially around um, engineers, uh, scientists, people for whom freedom is freedom of thought freedom of expression uh, is important. Um, which, in a way, makes the problem worse, right? Because the free-thinking people uh, yeah. are leaving instead of uh, fighting. Uh, we should which, feel ashamed or guilty uh, that we left. Yeah, it's a bit um, different topic. Different, different <laughs> conversation. But we did, we did, you and I did leave Israel um, because we did not agree with what was happening there instead of staying and fighting. So I can definitely relate to kind of this self-centered idea, this country is not for me any longer. I want to live somewhere else. Yeah. Um, and I think that, um, I think there is a lot more desire to do that than, than ability to, to actually implement it. Uh, mm. I don't think Russia is happy to let this peop these people go. I don't think the West is happy to take those people in. Um, I think there's like, it's a, yeah, <laughs> it's like a bottleneck of many people trying to leave, but very few are actually able. It takes a lot of connections. And, and as far as I can tell, a lot of money at this point, too. Like the, the plane tickets are ridiculously expensive. The train tickets are expensive. It's like everything is... Anyway, so this is one side. Of Before the war, could Russian go and live in Kazakhstan? For example? I don't know. Even. I have no idea. Um, it's likely. So Russians could go and live and maybe even get like a permanent residence thing in... Uh, in places like Germany, because you know my cousin uh, did that. Uh, she went to study in in in, uh, in Germany and got permanent residence there. So there were there were ways, but people with with Russian citizenship could not naturally just go and live somewhere else without a visa. It usually required some uh, uh, some work. Anyway, on the other hand, people. So I think the line is around um, like how. Like around forty, right? Anybody who's younger than forty might fall into the that first category that I talked about. Anyone who's older, who kind of was maybe a teenager when uh, Soviet Russia collapsed, um, and maybe they don't like people who don't live in in big cities and are not as exposed to kind of culture at large. Um, they, I think, would have a narrower view uh, and kind of a Russian-centric view of of life, um, especially if they don't have good command of English, which um, outside of the big cities, I don't think a lot of people do. Anybody who's older than 40 and probably lives outside of the big cities, um, I think they're more likely to believe what the state media is saying. Um 
So this is an interesting thing. The fact that people use the internet does not mean they have a broader perspective. First of all, Russia has, there's a, there's a lot of internet in Russian. So if you don't speak English, you're in a bubble of Russian speaking internet. Um, so people, so there is, um, um, I know people in the West know this, um, but there's a Facebook alternative called Vkontakte uh, that uh, people in Russia use. There is a Google alternative called Yandex that people in Russia use. There's like a whole separate ecosystem. Um, and unless you're a software developer or someone who actually uses English for their work, you're not very likely to encounter media um, outside of the Russian speaking kind of bubble. Now, that Russian speaking bubble um, can be controlled by the state, obviously. Um, it sounds like, you know, there are two uh, chat apps, um, like encrypted chat apps, Telegram and Signal. Signal is uh, an American company. Uh, Telegram is a Russian company. It seems that even though Telegram is encrypted, um, things that people say on Telegram reach the authorities. Uh, how that's happening, I'm not sure, but there are rumors of people being Shoot. Yeah. <laughs> There's uh there are rumors of people being arrested because of things they say on Telegram. Uh I think that technologically it's not easy to decrypt those messages, but it's probably very easy to join groups, right? Like FSB agent right. to join groups on Telegram and just listen in and just, you know, find those people who are saying um unapproved. Yeah. Anything. anything. So yeah. And we're talking, like, we're talking, um, I think the current, the new laws allow for up to 15 years in prison for saying um, unapproved things. Um, and, you know, who knows if those people go to prison or sent to Siberia or are just eliminated. Labor camp. And yeah, cool. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, it's not, it's not clear what exactly happens there. But there is definitely a need for the current regime to limit that expression to zero, right? They Because they're basically telling their people a completely untrue story about what's going on in the world and what's going on in, the, in Ukraine. So they need to control yeah. the media to a very large extent and control what people say and what people think and who's allowed to speak and everything. It's like... Yeah, in, in some ways, it's even worse than what I experienced in Soviet Just Union. a side note. What? Yeah. Do you hear me? Yeah. Just a side note that when I grew up, we had a joke at, uh, at home that my father used to say, if somebody bugged me, he said, do you want me to eliminate them? <laughs> and I really liked that. But I, you know, when I grew up, I kind of realized, realized where is, where is yeah, it coming yeah. from? <laughs> yeah, I think that, <laughs> that it's really it, happened. Well, yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, um, I think the, the proper uh, translation is, uh, is to use the word disappear as a verb. It's to disappear someone. Disappear yeah, them, that's, yeah. Uh, yeah, and, that's and yeah, there was, um, so when I was growing up in the 80s, that wasn't, um, as far as I can tell, wasn't a thing anymore. But from the stories I heard in the 60s and 70s, this was definitely a thing. People who said the wrong thing um, would be disappeared. 
and it happened a lot and it, yeah. and earlier before that in stalin's era that was really common there was like probably millions of people to whom it happened so i guess what i'm saying is that um contrary to the popular western idea that this can't go on and it has to collapse no it doesn't have to collapse it can go on for a very long time um it's a fear-based society and um you know if you look at at something like north korea it's been going on there for for very very long time it's it's not impossible to do that um people's need for freedom can be suppressed to a very large degree and everyone who stands up to say something is removed and then even if people have some dissident thoughts in private they would not express them or sure as hell not fight for them and you were talking about that uh, there is more support in putin and the reason is that people so say 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 about that when we talked about the bias that they are so uh, this their understanding is so ingrained already so even when people show pictures of the horrors happening in ukraine they don't believe it well you know what would you believe it let's let's say you're you're a um you live in russia and you maybe have some subtle criticism of your government but you don't concern yourself too much with it you, you know you have a job to do you have maybe kids to raise and, uh, and and groceries to buy and you live a small life which is which is a safe way to live in russia right if you don't if you don't stand out you would probably not be cut down yeah, survival, yeah, it's a yeah. it's a survival. So so not thinking about certain things is is a survival mechanism. Um, and at the same time, you have this this ingrained sense of Russia as being on the right side of history, um, based on um, how it defeated the Nazis in in the Second World War, right? Which is which is a big part right. of of um, Russian identity. We. Um, defeated the Nazis, and from the Russian point of view, they did it by themselves. They, the West had nothing to do with it. Um, it's it's for, for Russians, it's the Great Patriotic War. It's not the Second World War. The fact that the rest of the world was involved in it is not a big part of the narrative there. Um, <laughs> so the fact that um, we as Russians defeated the Nazis makes us good forever, regardless of whatever we do. Because it's impossible to conceive that the country that defeated the Russians would do something bad or something wrong. Um, And because the war in Ukraine and um, or the special operation in Ukraine officially is designed to root out the Nazis in Ukraine, then of course we're on the right side of history, right? It's like we're doing we are doing a good thing. And Putin, as a powerful leader is with great courage and determination going and removing a nazi regime from ukraine of course he deserves our support and if there are images of horrors of course it's the nazis doing it how can we do that we're the good guys like it's it's impossible to conceive that we russians the good guys are doing that there must be some mistake it's either photoshopped or they're doing it them, themselves to paint us in a, in a in a bad way or or something is fishy it just can't be true so 
you like to talk a lot about um, bias um, and confirmation bias, and and <laughs> and this is this is the same kind of confirmation bias that every one of us has to keep believing what we believe, what we believe, but it's just you know gone up to eleven, because now it's our own confirmation bias reinforced in mass by by the state media. And everything, every thought, every idea, every person who would offer a different perspective is suppressed. So you have, instead of like a personal confirmation bias, you have a group confirmation bias with with a lot of force put into making it stick. Yeah, and, and the sanction that the West is imposing on Russia is just... Exactly, exactly. Because, because, you know, looking at it from the West, it's like, well, you know, of course, people in Russia, when they see the imposed sanctions, uh, would rebel against Putin. No, they won't, because who's imposing sanctions? It's the West. Who's at fault for imposing sanctions? It's the West. Putin, Putin is just trying to clear Ukraine of Nazis. So obviously, the West is collab- collaborating with those Nazis, and now they're adding um, sanctions on top of it to not let Putin... Um, destroy that regime which was in in the russian narrative which was funded by nato and 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 supported by the west so it's it's a it's such a different way to see the world that it's almost i had this idea that oh you know we should fly over russia and drop little leaflets showing the photos of whores from ukraine or we should hack their state tv and show them that won't help. Unfortunately, uh, that will only, whoever already believes in state media, w- that would solidify their their perception of how the West is evil uh, and how they're trying to manipulate. And even controlling their TV and trying yeah, yeah, yeah. to manipulate. Wow. It's mind-blowing, huh? To... Yeah. And I think it's 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 a place for for each of us to, because right now we think that we are the good ones. <laughs> well, <laughs> we are so so so. Um, how to say it? Like so positive that we are the good ones. We're or, yeah positive. yeah we're on, on the right side of history. Yeah. yeah, and who knows? It's good to introduce a doubt. <laughs> So we can check this and we can check ourselves at the same time that we're still doing the good fight, but not saying stop everything you do. But this doubt is so important for each of us to, yeah. to ask. It's, um, and, you know, we, we see it in, in, in the West too, because um, if you take something like COVID, which no one remembers anymore because there's a word in Ukraine, but... <laughs> What, 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 yeah, exactly. What? Uh, <laughs> so, um, COVID was a very, or maybe still is, a very polarizing topic, right? So, um, people who believe or believed, or rather, that everyone should wear masks and everyone should get vaccinated, and everyone who does not want to get vaccinated or refuses to wear masks a mask is is a danger to society believed they were good 
They were trying to save people from being sick. They were trying to save people from dying. They were trying to save hospitals from being overloaded and so on and so forth. People on the other hand, on the other side, who refused to wear masks and who refused um, to vaccinate uh, themselves or their children, believed they were good. They were acting against uh, a controlling government. They were acting against the, uh, the corporations that were trying to push unnecessary medicine into our veins. They were trying to uh, protect freedom. So both people on both sides uh, were really adamant that they were good. And as far as I can tell, very, very, very few people switched sides in this debate. Right. It's extremely rare for people to switch sides, even with free media, even even with publicly available information. And yes, the the kind of the anti-vaccine um, messages were suppressed to an extent by social media as fake news, but that information was still getting to people. It was still available. There was still a way to get it. And it supported the narrative that they had anyway. Exactly, and it and, yeah. and exactly, and it supported the narrative they had anyway. And and still, people like people did not change their opinions about I this. I changed for a million times. Part. You change well, yeah, but that's your job, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's your job to uh, and and mine to an extent to to be flexible with our opinions. Um, but that's true because but, the fact did changed, and the, the there was like was the more time came. Um, the, the more t- time into the, the pandemic, there was more facts and more information, and still most of the people, like you say... Yeah, and didn't their, change their opinion. Yeah. It's And it's not... I'm not even saying, you know, these people on this side are right and these people are on that other side are wrong. It's not even about that. It's about the deep split and the inability to come to a common understanding of the problem and the inability of both sides to say to the other side, you know what, some of what you're saying is actually true. Because if we if if we look at the whole thing from the outside, these two groups are worried about different things. One is worried about safety. Uh, the group who wants vaccines, who wants everyone to get vaccinated, who wants everyone to wear uh, a mask, uh, or maybe, I don't know, like a condom <laughs> over their entire body. Uh, the this group of people is worried about their own safety and their loved ones' safety. They're like yeah. really about that. The other group is worried about freedom. Um, they're worried that themselves and their loved ones and other people would suddenly live in a non-free society where you can't say certain certain things or you can't behave in certain ways or you can't you know Meet even decide. To- yeah, meet people yeah. that you want and do whatever you yeah. want. Yeah, and and you can't even um, control what gets into your body, right? That that is um, the other side. So, interestingly enough, um, so it's like it's a safety versus freedom kind of debate. Uh, but now we have a new debate with the sides in the opposite direction. We're now talking about how much we should intervene in the war in Ukraine. Right back to the Ukrainian topic. Thank and, you. <laughs> and. Um, when we when we have this increasingly polarized discussion about how much to intervene, we again have safety versus freedom, but the groups are reversed. The people who were who were protecting freedom against masks and vaccines are now typically saying we shouldn't intervene in Ukraine because that will result in World War III nuclear holocaust 
we're all going to die. And the people on the other side who used to be worried about safety around um, uh, the vaccine and the virus are saying, oh, no, we need to defend the freedom of the people of Ukraine because this is already a world war. And if we don't do if we don't stop it there, it will get uh, to the rest of us. So it's not even true to say that there are some people who care about freedom and other people who care about safety. It's just based on the particular uh, way they see a particular topic, what it brings for them. Uh, it, does it bring up a, a fear of losing their freedom or does it bring up a fear of losing their life or their health? Uh, so maybe we, can seems... say, maybe we can say that this issue of freedom and, and security is important to all of us uh, in different time in life and different stages and re uh, related to different topics. But we exactly. are all controlled by fear. Around these things. Around those things, yeah. Exactly. We all and 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 then you know, kind of the common ground that we can probably all agree on, even though nobody will agree with me, uh, is that we all want to be safe and we all want to be free. It's kind of the, it's a basic need um, of us as human beings to both feel safe and be free. We just value these things differently depending on the situation and on the context, and then we fight with the people who value these the two same things. Thing, in, yeah. In, yeah, but in a different order or, or in a different priority. And we all want to be the good guys. So we all believe that we're the good guys. <laughs> so the police in the Ferry Creek or whatever environmental conflicts believe that they're the good guys. They're doing what they're told. They're protecting society. They're serving the people while serving the guy, the industry. And the land defenders believe that they're the good guys. They are here to protect ancient, ancient trees that will never come back after evolutions of thousands of years of ec eco ecology. So it's just ecology. like, yeah. And it, 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 it hurts so much to, to realize and to admit that both sides, um, in most conflicts, both sides tend to be right. Um, I wouldn't apply that. I, I I see that in most situations. I wouldn't apply that to the war in Ukraine uh, right now because um, there's actually no doubt in my mind that there's a good side and a bad side, like an objectively good side and bad side in that particular conflict, more than in any, any other conflict that I've ever seen. Yeah, um, but we did we did said say just a few minutes ago that the citizen has no access to information. They, the citizen, believe they are the good guys, and they that this is why they, they support do. Putin. They, they do, they do, they do, and 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 we can see that. You and I saw that video of um, um, Russian uh, prisoners of war in Ukraine, uh, who were talking about how their realization that they were actually going to attack Ukraine, that they actually crossed the border, that this was not just an exercise, and how much shame they feel. And, and you told me, wait a second, but this can be, you know, if just, if people just saw that they would change their minds, but this was different. This was someone who with their own eyes, um, saw what was going on. They were not going into the Donbass area. They were going towards Kiev and they were not being met with flowers. They were being met with very stiff resistance from, from, from the Ukrainian uh, people. Um, any any attempt to convey that through the media, whether the interview with this guy or or any kind of thing you bring in from Ukraine, 
can be claimed as fake. This is this is the world we live in. It's on one hand the world of full transparency and everyone knows everything about everybody else. And on the other hand, we don't believe anything that doesn't corroborate what we already believe. You want to talk about the fear that um, the NATO feels to help and this, this kind of situation, yes or not to engage? So when you look at on, on social media, on Twitter, um, there are many, 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 many conversations around should we help or should we not help? Should we um, uh, impose a no-fly zone over Ukraine or would this bring about uh, a nuclear holocaust? Um, like an immediate nuclear holocaust. I'll start with my own perception of this, uh, which is just an opinion. But I don't believe for a second that yeah, a single... You are the best. Well, thank you. <laughs> but it's an it's an opinion. It's it's yeah. it's a somewhat informed opinion, but it's not it's not the truth. Um, I don't believe that a single step of escalation will result in an immediate annihilation of the entire world. It's going to take a hundred steps, maybe five hundred steps of um, gradual escalation, with no um, no attempts to step back. From the brink, um, I don't believe Putin is crazy. Um, I believe the basic idea of self-preservation is alive in him. Uh, he doesn't care as much about the lives of his citizens, and he doesn't care as much about the lives of Ukrainians, obviously. Uh, but he's not suicidal. And because he's not suicidal, um, going for a full nuclear holoca holocaust is something he might do if he sees that he has no other choice at all. Um, How do you so, know he's not suicidal, that he's not crazy? This is what people think about him in the West. Yeah, this I know. Fear, but, right? So, so, so what makes you, you know, think that? So there's there there is some intelligence about him being really worried about COVID and him really being really wo worried about um, assassinations and he sits really far away from his advisor uh, advisors as we saw in videos and the explanation coming in from intelligence services about that is that it's because of his fears. Um, so because he's a fearful man, um, it's it's reasonable I think to assume that he is afraid of his own death and he does not wish it. Yeah. Uh, that's what I mean uh, in in him not being suicidal. Um, he's very controlling. He's trying to control the situation around him in in very powerful means. That also tells me that he does not want things to just happen, um, and and to, you know just to let it go. It doesn't doesn't seem to be the kind of person. Um, and. And there is a definite, like, even if we don't agree with the tactics, there is still, you know, he's attacking Russia, but he also goes to negotiate uh, uh, peace treaties and humanitarian aid. He doesn't stick to that because there is value to allow for humanitarian aid and then bomb it because it creates a lot more stress for the Ukrainian people. 
Um, so like, you know, not ethical value, but there is military value in that kind of, in that kind of approach. Uh, so from a certain, <laughs> from a certain point of view and a certain outlook, those are logical decisions and those are logical, like they're not moral or they're morally reprehensible, but, um, they are somehow, um, based in logic. Um, so this, this, this kind of fuels my perception of him not being kind of a crazy rogue agent that would do crazy things. And also, However, you, and also you were talking about, uh, maybe say it again, that, uh, there was something you read that, uh, as I said, the narrative that was that it's on a, on a blink of a tri- trigger, somebody will just pull, push, push the button and then it's find out to be not true. So can you say Oh yeah, I'll, uh, yeah. So, um, but be, be, sorry. Before, before I, I answer that, um, even if we if we did believe Putin is crazy and he would launch all his rockets at um, uh, at the West at the slightest whim, then we don't actually have anything, um, any way to control that. If he's crazy and he might just launch all the rockets because we offended him, uh, then there is absolutely no way to avoid that and we should prepare for a Holocaust anyway. And I don't think that's the case. But if that were the case, not acting against Russia would seem unreasonable to me too. Right. Like if he's crazy, then there's no, like he could use any pretext to do that, whether we intend to do it or not. Like he could, he could, he could launch rockets because his tea was called this morning. If he's actually crazy, um, so it actually, I'm kind of coming to this conclusion that whether he's crazy or not, um, the position of not um, opposing him does not make a lot of sense to me. The other part that your question uh, that you asked is that launching nuclear rockets requires multiple people to be involved in it. Because that's such a big danger to society, there are lots of checks and balances in place in any country, not in the sense of um, um, just the rules, but also in just how many wires you need to connect to get those <laughs> those freaking lockets to, to launch. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I read somewhere, I'm not sure what the source is, but um, um, the leader of the Soviet Union in the 60s, I think it was Khrushchev, um, he said... Our um, our nuclear rockets are set on auto launch. If you launch yours, ours will be launched without any um, any touch of, uh, of of a human being. Um, he said that to create a powerful deterrence from launching nuclear rockets at the Soviet Union. It turned out that they never had automated systems to launch rockets. And it also doesn't make sense for them to have that because automated systems fail. As we all know, technology fails. And if there was an automated system, then um, that would be extremely risky. And it's the ultimate risk, right? It's the destruction of all life. So there was no automated system. There was always a person or maybe two or maybe even three people who needed to decide at a particular point in time that rockets needed to be launched. Um, and the stories that we heard of, of the uh, uh, Cuban Missile Crisis and a few other kind of almost launching nuclear weapons kind of crises, uh, the story that it was only prevented by a single person at the last moment who didn't um, 
press the red button, is likely also false. It's a useful story to have because both countries, it's in both countries, uh, United States and, and, and Soviet Union, it was in both countries' interest to believe that the other will launch nuclear weapons immediately. It was, it was useful as a belief system so that no one would. Right. But in practice, it was even more useful to make sure that a launch would not happen accidentally. <laughs> Right. So there was, it's like there's, there's a difference between the message that was sent to the other country and that was sent to the population and between how things were managed tactically on the ground in terms of how these weapons are controlled. Okay, and the final piece of this puzzle is um, is a question of how you should behave when you're in a prison. So this is a bit of a tangent. Uh, there's a guy by the name of... Uh, Kamil Galeev, I think he writes a lot on, on Twitter, and he brought up this uh, this idea that when you are in prison, in, in, in particular in the Russian prison, um, you can't reason with the people there, right? That's like it's a power-based dynamic. Whoever has the power has, um, has control. And if you are reasonable, if you answer questions when they're when they're asked, if when someone uh, asks you to tell them about your life, you slowly go down the rungs of power in prison until that until a time when you sleep by the toilet because that's the only place they would let you sleep and they do horrible things to you. Um, the point of this is that in a, in a kind of power dynamic where it's only controlled by who has more power reason is not necessarily the right thing to do so the west is treating putin as if we are all controlled we are all governed by the same set of rules but by the same set of laws like there is an like the the the, the international court in hague is what is the one that decides who is going to pay for their crimes, which is not actually happening in reality. We're not, that's not how the world works. The UN does not have the power to impose its will on anybody, uh, especially not a country like Russia that can, that has veto power in the UN Security Council. Council. Um, so we're not talking about a kind of lawful society. We're talking about countries that actually do whatever the hell they want. And that includes Russia and that includes the US, right? The US has ignored agreements and attacked countries and and did whatever the hell they wanted to impose their rule and their rule of law and their style of democracy and their governments in many places around the world. Um, and Russia has ignored lots of rules uh, by itself. So it's not if we stick to the rules, then things will happen in a predictable way kind of um, system. It's a kind of system where you have, like, if, if Putin believes you are serious about threatening him then he will behave in one thing in one way and if he believes you're not serious then he will behave in another way it's it's a different dynamic um and the crazy thing about being in this dynamic is that you have to take the risk of getting punched in the face otherwise you absolutely will be if you don't take the risk if you don't take the initiative of of being aggressive enough and getting punched in the face you will be destroyed and now there's a final question. Is Russia even a superpower anymore? Because they're 
military in Ukraine is not doing very well. Yeah. Should we even be that afraid? Like, given how their tanks perform, are their nuclear weapons even in a good enough shape to fly? Who knows? <laughs> maybe the plutonium has run out. Maybe they haven't updated their software. Maybe, who knows? Maybe the whole thing is rusty. Like, I wouldn't necessarily bet my life and the life of the entire world on those weapons being rusty, but it does reduce some of their uh, deterrence capability. It's not like, they're not in the same shape as they said they were, and there's ample evidence to see that that's not the case. And this is so, so interesting yeah. because with when the war started, everybody assumes that Russia just drive in and control and take over the country in a few days. You mean Ukraine? Yeah. I yes, thought right? I thought so too. The great the great Russian army would just roll over Ukraine and they would not be able to do anything. Now the Ukrainians are are fighting tooth and nail against the Russian invasion, but the reason they're succeeding is that the Russians really are really doing a bad job. Yeah. Like they have no motivation, their 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 equipment is in shambles. Um the only thing they have they on their side lies. is yeah, and, and the only thing they have on their side is numbers, and even that is not, like, if they had a million soldiers uh, invading Ukraine, they would probably decimate Ukraine in, in a few weeks. But they only have, like, a couple of hundred thousand, and they're struggling to bring in more. So it's not that the, the fabulous Russian Red Army that would devastate the West that we were all taught about. It's a... The only thing they have on their side right now is their ability to inflict um, brutal damage to civil to the civilian population. That's the like the only thing they have right now. Yeah, that is, they're actually doing and actually yeah, able their, to their do. lack of their lack of ethics and their 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 awful moral stance is the only thing they have right now, the only thing they can fight with right now, which is why they're using it so much. Right, and it wouldn't surprise me that they would go beyond and you know use use um, maybe chemical, chemical weapons. Yeah, 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 and maybe even maybe even nukes. I don't know um, because they don't have anything else. They can't win uh, Ukraine through conventional means just by taking over territory with tanks. They they can't do that. The Ukrainians uh, are are too good in in defense, and the Russians are too bad at attacking. And even though Russians are making very slow, steady progress. They, they're running out of time. They're running out of money. Their equipment is breaking down. The um, um, the motivation. I, I wanted just is to, I just wanted to say that that when it started, there was a impression that there's, there's such a strong army that's just gonna win in a few days, and it's just gonna be piece of cakes for them. And we we do see the opposite, but our mind is slower to adjust <laughs> to hey. Because we're still with the same, like we, the West, NATO, US, even Israel, are the same way of to slowly, slowly, the slowly. The crazy strong Russia. <laughs> crazy strong Russia. They will kill us all. We have to obey. We have to be aligned. We have to whatever. We have to be afraid of them. And while there are different facts in reality of what's exactly. really going on. So this is like really interesting to see. Exactly. And this takes us back to the beginning of our conversations, how hard it is to let go of biases. And yeah. 
the entire world is biased to think that Russia is a really powerful uh, is a really powerful country from a military standpoint, and everybody is like, well, you know, they're weak, uh, they they're economically weak, and they're politically weak, but their military is strong. Well, their military is not that strong anymore. Um, you know, Israel d- does not want to send Iron Dome uh, installations to Ukraine because they're worried about Russia in Syria being on their border, and. Um, I just tweeted the other day is like, I don't think the Israeli military has anything to worry about Russians being on the border. I think they can, uh, like they say in Hebrew, eat them without salt. Yeah. Right? Because the, the Israeli military is actually uh, um, is actually well-prepared, well-trained and, and effective. And the Russian is not. So even even like the Air Force, the Israeli Air Force can probably destroy the, the Russian Air Force with, with no trouble. Um, so the fear seems to be unfounded. We are just not yet, we haven't accepted the fact that Russia is not USSR, and it's not even the Russia of 20 years ago. It's more like um, more like North Korea. Isolated, poor, um, trying to beat its chest, um, trying to show how strong it is, but not no one's really buying it kind of thing. So what uh, is the reality as you see it? Well, um, the Russian people are fucked for uh, probably long a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would. It's not a few weeks. It's not a few months. It's probably a decade, maybe more. I would be surprised if Russia has an uprising uh, in a short period of time. Um, the Ukrainians are fucked too, in a different way. Because the Russians will have absolutely no choice but to pound Ukraine into into oblivion. So lots of people will die. There's going to be lots of suffering. Um, there's going to be it's going to be a heroic state. So someone said that it's on, again on Twitter that there might not be a Ukraine five years from now, but there's definitely going to be Ukraine a hundred years from now. Um, and I know, don't know if they meant that Ukraine would rise from the ashes or that the memory of Ukraine would be like the memory of Sparta, you know, one mm. of the great heroic battles um, with, with songs and books and movies um, um, talking about that for, for many, many years to come. My mind said, no, 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 yeah, no, 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 no. I don't. Wow. You know, the examples we have of something like that are, are in um, Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, both when when U.S. attacked there and stayed there for a couple of decades and then eventually had to leave because the resistance was so strong. Uh, Soviet Union invaded or I don't know, had a war in Afghanistan um, earlier in the 80s and they had to leave because the resistance was so strong. Uh, Russia did invade and completely decimate Chechnya. Um, and they didn't leave, but they just raised it to the ground. There was nothing left. So these are the kind of the the, the, the two choices. Either, either there will be a, a, a strong control of Russia over Ukraine for a long time and the Ukrainians will keep fighting and eventually Russia will have to retreat. Or the Russians will completely decimate Ukraine uh, and, and kill millions of people. And, they, they, and then they might be able to control Ukraine um, by force. Yeah. Uh, all that happens if the and West kill those is not Nazis, actually... those Jews that are in control in the government, the Jews, the Nazis, yes, the, the, Nazi <laughs> the Jews, <Lansky>. yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, yeah, well, that's, Putin that's does so have sad. to tell some kind of. It, it is sad. That's it is so sad. sad, and I think, and I what think makes that you... yeah, I think the West can prevent that. 
but with tremendous risk. Even with a weak Russian military, even with an uncertain ability uh, to launch nuclear weapons, um, I think direct intervention into that war is highly risky. In what way? Risky to who? I think it's risky because of uh, of uh, a nuclear response, and I'm not even talking about um, like a worldwide nuclear decimation. Let's just take a small thing, right? Um, small scenario. The West, small scenario. The West intervenes, and the Russians drop a small tactical nuke on Kiev to kind of make sure that the West stops intervening. Um, that is potentially worse than the outcome of the war if the West does not aid. And if it's not Kiev, but but uh, Warsaw in, in Poland, like a direct attack on, on NATO, then that would require a direct response, right? So there might be an escalation. And if it's not a world decimation, if it's like, you know, five or six or eight of those tactical nukes dropped in various cities, all over the world, that's millions of people dead anyway. So I don't think that we're at risk of a total global catastrophe, but I do think we're at risk of, of a, a nice little nuclear exchange uh, with hundreds of thousands or millions of dead people as part of this. And that's a calculus that the Western leaders need to do. Like, are we letting uh, Ukrainians die? Uh, in large numbers, um, or are we risking potentially even more deaths uh, from an escalation? And can we even avoid that? Because, you know, if Ukraine gives up, then Putin would definitely have an appetite for more. And given the state of the military in this conflict, they would have ample reason to rebuild their military properly. Yeah. And then the next conflict will have a proper, effective Russian military with lots of people who saw real combat. So they will grow more effective, not Definitely. less effective. Yeah. So right now, Russia is in its weakest state, financially, militarily, um, politically. If there is a time to do anything about it, it's now. If we try to do it 10 years from now, it's going to be way worse. Yeah. And you know, they, they say that when, when someone decides um, that they need to go to war, they need to go to war themselves or send uh, their children to fight. And when I say that we need to go to war with Russia... I'm not quite at a, at, at a point where I'm willing to go and do it personally or, or send our kids there. But it's getting to that point. Like my own perception of how important this is is slowly progressing to the point of, yeah, there might need to be a war and I might need to fight. Yeah. And my own feelings is that... Um... Zelensky, I'm so impressed by his weapon, the truth, his honesty, 
his way to unite the world his yeah. way to be so he's he and his government are so authentic the way they they speak the way they answer questions the way they respond the way they're not act uh, attacking russia they they could attack russia too but they're not doing more, that yeah. they're just defending themselves and and i'm so inspired by by his action and their actions and and i and i want I, like it's an opportunity for the world to unite around that kind of leadership yeah, yeah. it's such an it could be such a missed opportunity if we let ukraine ukraine go down you know it's just so yeah such a missed yeah it's a moment it's it's a really important moment for the world and and the financial sanctions are important but are not enough because it takes a while for them to take effect and the people who get hurt most from those uh, from those again? sanctions are the are, yeah, exactly are the poor people in Russia. Yeah. Um, it will and Russia some... and, and Russia did prepare for that. They tried to do a different kind of uh, money system. They're working a on it. Banking system, yeah. Yeah, so they 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 probably did not expect the extent of sanctions because it's unprecedented the the level of financial pressure that's being put on uh, maybe they expect a little more support from China, which is not happy to <laughs> deliver support. Um, it's it's all true, but but it's going to take a long time to take effect, and I'm not holding out any hope for uh, for a revolution in Russia because of that. Yeah, because it will only it will only strengthen the people's support of Putin because the West is attacking. Um, and whatever and, the and, reason, also in Israel, like we can see that the more uh, Gaza people, uh, Palestinian, are, are desperate and hopeless and have no money, whatever the reason that the government gets the money but putting it in, on tunnels instead of building hospitals, but whatever the reason, people are in this situation become more violent, more desperate, instead of more, oh, let's unite and let's be... <laughs> Let's do meditation and, and more, for the peace of the world, and, and, yeah. and, and not just not just violent and desperate, but also more supportive of their um, um, of their government, right? Of 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 their strong leadership, um, and exactly, exactly. That's what people look for in, uh, in 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 dire situations. And that was the ground for Hitler coming coming up to power, and exactly, exactly, and. Um, and eventually, the West had to intervene, right? Eventually, um, the UK and the US had to say, you know, this is this is where we draw the line. And um, and interestingly enough, right now we're not drawing the line like NATO is not drawing the line on whether our values are being crossed and abused, but where the agreements are. So we're not going to defend democracy in Ukraine because it's not part of NATO. But if it happened in Poland, we would have no choice. This is a this is a weird position to hold. This is not we're leaders of the free world and we'll defend democracy and freedom and people wherever they are. This is like we're just taking care of our own little backyard garden. And if there's garbage outside or, you know, there's a mess outside of the fence of our little garden, then that's not our problem. 
because if we if we do veer over there then there's a risk to it. like there's it's a very timid position yeah very timid um, not, not not a good position to fight a bully and and yeah. And you know me, um, two weeks ago, I was a pacifist. I would never, <laughs> I would never say war is the right answer. You and I have been working on peaceful and nonviolent conflict resolutions, on finding, finding truth and, and beauty in every point of view. That's what we do, right? This, this, this is what our family is about. And, and here I'm like, fuck no, this is not, this is not one of those things. This no. is this is not this is yeah there is a time to talk and a time to um to love to, and there's also a time to fight for that same love to to flourish. Yeah cuz there there is this um uh, paradox in being nonviolent <laughs> that you if you stick to being nonviolent like um um Tibetan people when you yeah. when you're so much you get erased uh, yeah <laughs> you, ex- exactly you get erased so there is a line you have to protect yourself and your belief and yeah. and, and and those free values for everyone and sometimes uh, you have to fight for that because this is the language some we need, we need to adjust our language to the to the one we talk with yeah it's actually <laughs> it's funny um, being empathic an understanding towards Russia at this point in time, actually really understanding um, Their needs. them, yeah. yeah, is fighting. That's what it means. It means it means to fight because it's only if you don't understand what's going on and their actual needs and aspirations and motivations is when you think, oh, you know, we just need to stick to the rules or we'll talk about it some more. Yeah, I'll even make it stronger what you say, that if we judge people from our point of view, because this is my value of love and compassion, and I judge, the, I judge the world from this point of view, we are missing really understanding what's going on. We have to see the evidence, we have to see the truth. And we need to step into their shoes to see how the world looks from their point of view. Yes. And then once we've stepped into their shoes and understand that there is no way for them to realize they're on the wrong side of history, just no way. There's just no way for them to realize that as a people. Then coming back to our own shoes. Yeah. <laughs> and at the same thing. time, to remember that the people are not at fault of having those opinions and supporting Putin, but we still need to protect, We still need to fight. Yeah, and, exactly. and, and, and do the right thing right now at this moment. Exactly. And I did not expect this. Um, I knew we were going to talk about Ukraine, but I did not expect um, this conversation to be so dark. I don't know but, if it's dark. Because we need to fight it's dark. No, because we need to fight and we're not fighting. That's, I think the darkness will, will dissipate once we decide that we're actually ready to fight. Yeah. Then instead of darkness, there will be a sense of conviction and courage to fight for what's true and to, to stand up and to say, no, this is, this is not happening. I think Putin, you know, it's, it's, 
Yeah. I think, you know, for, for, for a few years, I don't know how long, he was pushing um, lots of fake news and helping right-wing leaders to be elected in the U.S. and in Brazil. And right now, we are all in the state of, like, what happened eventually is that we are all in the state of doubt of, I don't know. I don't know enough. I don't know the truth. I, I, I How can I trust uh, the information? I don't know. You know, I don't know. how. I, I hear it for so many people that are afraid to say something concrete in time that we need to say something concrete and we need to take action. But we grew up in, in the last few years in not believing the news, not believing the media, uh, not trusting any news. And we start to kind of... Uh, I don't know. I don't want to say uh, this kind of state, which yeah. is really, really making us weak right now. At the same time that I started this podcast, I say we need to introduce the doubt and check yourself. But it's a different kind of doubt. <laughs> we we need to introduce doubt uh, if we're feeling too certain, and we need to introduce certainty if we're feeling too doubtful. Yes, <laughs> and, and both both things require um, courage. Because if I'm certain about something and I need to introduce doubt, there's a lot of fear that comes up against that doubt. Like, what do you mean the world that I've seen with my eyes until now is actually wrong? That takes courage. And on the other hand, oh, I don't know who's right and I don't know who's wrong and I need to take a stand. Taking a stand and saying, no, this is, this is, these are my values. This is what I believe in. This is what I think we should do. That takes courage too. And courage is, well, courage is what Zelensky is teaching us. <laughs> so the Messiah of, uh, of yeah. democracy, when the whole world forgot what it means to fight for democracy, we're just fighting within democracy, but we're not fighting for it. And here's, here's an example of a guy that says, you know what? When you got to fight, you got to fight. You can't, you can't shy away from that. Because it's coming to your house and you can't say, well, you know what? I'm not feeling like it. <laughs> I have a Pilates class. <laughs> <laughs> you can't, you can't like, I, I really like my cheap gas uh, and I don't want to impose sanctions on Russian oil because I really like my cheap gas. And I'm, <sighs> well, I think one of the thing we, we, as, as each, each one of us, when we are aligned with our values, it might be, it cost us, there is price to pay, but it feels good. Our heart is open. We have courage. We have burning of energy to act and to do the right thing. There is alignment with the true things and, and, and with the world. Thank you for listening to the Effective Conversations podcast. Please reach out to talk about how we can help you and your organization transform conflict into cooperation. Don't forget to share the podcast to support others in healing their hearts, the divide, and our planet. Mm -hmm.